Hi there. Thanks for listening to Earmark. I'm Blake Oliver, your host. I'm a CPA, and like many of you, I struggle to keep up with CPE. Continuing professional education is essential, but usually it's not very convenient. That's about to change. I'm launching an app called Earmark CPE that will offer CPE for listening to accounting and tax podcasts. To learn more and sign up for early access, check out earmarkcpe.com. Welcome everyone to the Earmark Accounting Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Oliver, CPA. My guest today is Edward Menlowitz. Ed is a partner in Witham's East Brunswick, New Jersey office and has over 40 years of public accounting experience. He is a licensed certified public accountant in New Jersey and New York. He is accredited by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants in business valuation and as a personal financial specialist. Ed, Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Blake. Nice to be here. So, Ed, you are an incredibly prolific writer. You have written 16 books, hundreds of articles, and I have been a fan of your articles in particular on CPA trend lines and accounting today for years. And the impetus for this interview today was an article that you wrote on CPA trend lines, and I love the title. The title of the piece is why does all work take so long? And this is a series of articles where you answer questions from accountants, from practice leaders, practice owners. You have been very helpful to folks in the profession after all of your experience uh, running your own practice and in, 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 in with them. And so I like this article. I read it. I internalized it. The question is, everything in my office seems to take too long and I can't put a finger on why. Can you provide any guidance? And you gave some great tips, a, a list of things, including leadership, management, supervision, training, systems, processes, scope creep, all of these things that we deal with in practices and that I'm familiar with in, in, in my own career. But there was one thing that I feel that wasn't in there, which is a touchy subject for a lot of folks. And that is timesheets and time-based billing. And I suggested on the cloud accounting podcast and on LinkedIn that perhaps this might be one of the top reasons why work takes so long, because we manage people based on their hours. They are often incentivized to take extra time to get things done because they have to hit these billable hours targets. So I'd love to discuss this with you because you responded to that and said, I totally disagree. So I'd love to get your perspective as somebody who's been in this profession for a long time, who has a lot of experience as to what is the value of timesheets, of time-based billing, especially when it comes to uh, managing a team. Well, first of all, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a lot of fans and a lot of followers and, and People thought I was criticizing you, and they took great exception to it. So um, you have a good fan base. Uh, Timesheets is really a peripheral issue. It, it's not a major issue. It's a major issue for people who advocate and evangelize that you shouldn't use timesheets. It, it, they, they say there should be a different way of managing a practice. So those are, and there's a small group. It's it's a large group, but it's small in the in the total totality of, of everybody that uses it. So, those are the people that feel it's an issue. The people that are using it don't feel it's an issue. It, it's being used by a lot of firms. It, it's very effective as a management tool. I don't think it's effective as a billing tool, which which I could give you a few reasons why. But as a management tool, I find it invaluable and very important. I also don't know too many firms that are, that are, are largest-sized firms, and I'll say 25, 30 people or more that, that are growing that are not using timesheets. A lot of the firms that are, that are not using timesheets are very small, and, and they're effective, and they're doing well, and, and good for them, and I wish them all, all the luck that, that, they, that they want. 
but uh, it doesn't allow a business to be scalable. It doesn't allow a business to, be, to grow because it's hard to control people. In terms of incentivizing staff, I have never seen that. I have, I've been around a long time. I've been in a couple of firms, had my own practices. I tried everything that you could try in an accounting practice. I tried not using it. I tried using it. I tried hybrid methods. I tried all sorts of ways. I have never seen anybody stretching out time or, or in effect, lying on timesheets. This was a big issue of the comments that were made in the LinkedIn thread that, that people lie on timesheets. That, that's not the case. People that lie on timesheets are liars. They don't belong in the profession. And, and, and no accounting firm should, should tolerate people like that. There is a lot of time pressure in accounting firms to get work done. The time pressure is not because time goes on a timesheet. The time pressure is because we have deadlines. We have deadlines that, that the government imposes, that, that lenders impose, and that clients impose. And we have to meet the deadlines. And our people slap off and dilly-dallied, and, and they just added time to build up time. Work is not going to get out. And, and, and the partners and the managers are always pushing to get the work done. At the end of a job, they might they look at the time to get an idea of how much time was put in to use it as a guide going forward. Also, it's a myth that we built up time and we raised the fees because of that. There's tremendous pressure by clients on the fees. And, and, and any fee that, that's larger than expected is questioned by clients. If it's not questioned the first time, it's questioned suddenly by the third time. So, so there's pressure to keep the time low, to keep the fees low, to, to, to be within budget, and to get the work done on time. So the implication of a lot of people that don't use timesheets are that there's lying, that, that staff build up the time, that, that they build up the fees. It's, it's just not true. It, it doesn't, it's not happening. It's not true. Now, I'm not going to tell you that, one of, that there's one or two people that, that, that do it. You know, of course, people do it. But uh, in the totality of the profession, it's very, very small, and it's not an issue in firms that are using it. So to that specific point, the, the lying on timesheets, that's a strong way to put it. Maybe another way that I witnessed is stretching out activities. So I put myself in the shoes of a staff accountant who knows there's a particular budget for this project. They could hustle, they could try to finish it sooner, but they know there is 40 hours allocated to this. Why not just take the full 40 hours, take it easy, stretch out the project to meet the budget? There's there's no benefit to that person to get it done any faster. And if the firm is actually billing hourly, it'll just hurt the firm's billings. Well, first but, of all, the, most bills are not time bills. Even a firm like mine, which is a large firm, and, and you could even go larger to the big four, we all, when we take on jobs, big jobs, we say it's a time-based bill, here are the rates, and here is a range. That range becomes a fixed fee. And, and actually, the midpoint of that range is the fixed fee. And if you do an exceptional job or you run into things you didn't expect, it'll be at the high end of that range. And if you get the job super fast for whatever reason, because of a lot of cooperation, we didn't expect things that you were expecting to do, uh, you didn't have to do. So it's at the low range of the range. But th those are fixed fees. And if you right. go beyond, you go a dollar beyond the range, clients are going to want to know why. Number two, there are some staff that work very quickly and, and very good and, and don't make errors. And then there are some staff who work slowly and make errors. Actually, the, the staff that work slowly usually don't make errors, and the staff that work quick quickly usually make errors. But occasionally you get someone who works fast and they don't make errors. The partners and the managers know who are good and they know who are bad. And, and, and they know who... If people are stretching out work to fit the budget, 
one time, two times, three times, it probably works. On a sustained basis, these people are not getting the promotions that they want. They're not getting the raises they, they want. If the firm is paying bonuses, they're not getting the bonuses that, that they want. The firms know who the good people are. Now, if you have a firm of 100 people, you could, you could lose people in the firm where you need bodies someplace. So, so not everybody in the firm is a superstar. But in small firms, which I think a lot of the people uh, that, that listen to your podcast and, and, and read what I write, write are small firms, and, and they have no, no leeway for that. They have no tolerance for that. Everybody has to be productive. Everybody has to perform. We try to meet the budgets as much as possible. It, it's not the work budget that's important. It's the time budget. It's, it's the due date budget that we have to meet. Not, not the, okay, this job is, is a is a 40-hour job. No, this job is still in, in, in three weeks. That's right, the budget right. that has to be met. And, and there's pressure to meet that budget. And if people are not performing the services that they're supposed to do, or they're spending too much time on, say, the easy stuff and too little time on the hard stuff, where well, a lot of people might tend to start on the easy stuff uh, because they're more comfortable with it, and then they, they get rushed for the hard stuff. That, that's, a pro- that's a problem of poor management to well, get the but, people to, to work in the right area. So, so under the hourly billing incentive model, the easy stuff and the hard stuff is valued the same for the staff person. I mean, taking out this idea that they want to get promoted to partner, let's just, let's just talk about most staff. Most staff are not going to make partner ever. So that's like 90%, right? So, so for them, the easy and the hard is the same. They know they have to hit a certain billable hour target. I'm just speaking from my own experience. In the firm that I worked in, my staff, I was a manager, my staff had to hit certain targets in order to get their bonus. And it was significant. And I was running a cast practice, bookkeeping, accounting, trying to implement new technology to make the firm more efficient. And we were operating on fixed fees. So just like you said, most firms don't actually do time-based billing in reality anymore. They, they either do time-based billing in a range, which is essentially a, a loosey-goosey fixed fee, or they do true value pricing, but they're not, they're not actually pricing it on hours. And I think that's an important thing to distinguish between most firms don't bill hourly anymore in reality. They bill a fixed fee. They are still managing their employees though under an hourly model. And that disconnect is what I experienced in the firm and what caused a lot of grief for me and ultimately was one of the reasons why I left that firm. There were a lot of reasons, but that was one of my frustrations was I couldn't seem to get staff from a grassroots level to adopt tech because, and, and one of them actually told me this straight up, most of them weren't this honest, but one told me, you know, I have, I have to hit these hours if I use the tech that you're wanting to put in place with this client, it would cut my hours in half, and now I'd have to take on another client. And I just don't want to do that. That's that's worse for me. So, but, but, but there's different kinds. Of, I'm not talking about getting promoted to partner. I'm talking yeah. about if you're if you're a staff one, you want to get promoted to staff two. If you're a staff two, you want to get promoted to supervise. It, it, it's to get promoted to the next level. And part of the promotion is a title, but, but a, a better part of the promotion is a raise. And, and, and if you are doing well, you get a very good raise because the firm doesn't want to lose you and they want to recognize your value. And if you're not doing a great job, and in fact, you become dispensable to the firm, you'll get a raise, but it won't be a big raise. And, and after a couple of years, you'll find yourself not keeping up with maybe the market, and, and then you leave on your own. Managing staff, managing people is the fault, is the job of the supervisor and manager. And if the people, I don't want to point to you specifically, but I never had trouble managing staff. I had good staff and I had bad staff. If I had bad staff, I used them for the best I can get out of them for what, for what they could do. 
but they didn't get the, the raises that the that the good staff got. And I and I let nature take its course. I, I learned early on, maybe not early on, but I learned at some point that if I don't have the good staff, I'm better off letting them go because then I let them go on my terms instead of letting them leave on their terms and their timing. So, so, became, so can I ask you that, sure. like on that, how did you, you, you said earlier, the partners know, the managers and partners know who is good and who is bad. How do you know that? You see the work, you see them performing. You see how much time they spend on something. Look at the product. Look, I give a, I give a webinar. The most popular webinar that I give is reviewing tax returns. I get a few thousand people every time I give the webinar. How to review and, a tax return? How to review a tax return. And, and the biggest complaint that the people, the biggest reason that people attend that webinar is because. The amount of errors that are made when the return is handed in for review is, is, is staggering. A good firm, a very good firm, has maybe 25% of the returns that are handed in for review have errors. Most firms have 75 to 95% of returns handed in to a reviewer have errors. What kind of crap is that? So, now, okay, so on that point, why don't we, instead of measuring staff based on the hours it takes them, measure them instead on the number of errors on the returns that they hand in for review. That seems I did. Like- when I had my practice, if, if staff made continuous errors, I let them go. I, I did not allow them to work for me. Right. Very that wasn't, simple. But that wasn't like, in my firm, that wasn't a metric at the firm level was accuracy. It was all time. And and I struggled. I struggled because as a manager, I was responsible for the realization and the utilization of my team. And I struggled. I really struggled to fit the hourly performance metrics into my clients that were fixed fees. Because, like, let's say one month we have a client on a monthly subscription. It's a small one, a thousand dollars a month. One month, they might need a lot of help, and we might go over. But I'd know that in future months, we would go under. But yet, I would get called out for being over budget on clients, and I'd have to justify it to the partners, even though it wasn't a true cost. It wasn't a true cost overrun because we were all fixed salaries in the department. It didn't matter. And if you looked at the whole team, if you looked at all the clients, it averaged out. But I couldn't... I couldn't get that across to folks. It was so difficult to explain that. I mean, I, I really do believe that like when you try to allocate costs by hours, it's, it's imaginary. It's just because all these staff, they're not hourly. I mean, they were paid salaries, right? So who cares if we go over on one client? Uh, I, I don't want to call out any particular firm, but, but the firm that you work for, I presume they were they a large. Were they, did they have over thirty people or under thirty people? Top twenty-five thousand okay. staff, hundred partners. Okay, top twenty-five yeah. firm. Are, are they? How, when did you stop working for them? I guess that would have been four or five years ago. Okay. Did are they? Are they bigger today than they were four or five years ago, or about the same size in terms of total staff? No, they've been do, growing. Do you know? qu- they've been growing quite a lot. All right, so so this proves I, that that you can have poor management or a bad management model and still do well. Right, right, and I and I don't think that time based billing is broken. It obviously works. I just think that it's not optimal. And the true all stars in your firm, the ones who are able to achieve ten x outcomes, who should be future partners, like me. I I I was uh I was recruited I think as a manager into the firm having never been a staff because I had my own firm and I think they considered me to be future partner material but I was frustrated by this way of managing because it limited what I could achieve I was limited by the billable hour in the the growth that I could get because I couldn't incentivize my staff to actually take initiative and, and, and implement tech on their own, I had to do a top down and I was basically fighting some of them. 
because they didn't want to change, because what they were doing was working fine for them. Hey there, fellow podcast listeners. My name is Blake Oliver. I'm a certified public accountant. And like many of you, I'm required to get continuing professional education credits every year to keep my license active. How do I get those credits? By going to conferences, going to webinars. What I can't do is listen to podcasts. And that has frustrated me, which is why I've created a new app. It's called Earmark CPE, and it will allow you to get continuing professional education credits for listening to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts. Podcasts like this one, the Earmark Accounting Podcast and the Cloud Accounting Podcast. The app is launching soon, so sign up for early access by going to earmarkcpe.com or click the link in the show notes. That's earmarkcpe.com. Earmark, free your CPE. That was my frustration. I have, I have one story I want to tell you. I want to get your take on this. So I, I became friendly with a staff accountant. I think she was a senior who was not in my office. And we worked on a client. She didn't report to me. So I think she felt more comfortable talking to me. And she showed me her secret timesheet. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this, but she had a, a, a timesheet in our practice management system. And then she had a spreadsheet that she kept of all of her clients along with the budgets on a monthly basis and how many hours she could bill against those clients without getting in trouble or getting called out for it. And so she would first record her hours that she actually worked in the secret timesheet. She didn't call it that. that was, that's my term for it. She'd record her hours in there, look at the budget and make sure she was on track. And if she wasn't, she would adjust things to make sure she was. So that is, she didn't think of this as lying on her timesheet. Um, and perhaps she even, you know, wasn't actually changing the hours. She was just changing how much she worked on certain clients, whatever you want to call it. It's a little bit gray area, but it was definitely distorting the real timesheet and the data that the partners were getting because she wasn't putting in what was actually happening 100%. And she was doing that, I think, because she was incentivized to come in under budget on these clients. And so that's what I, when, when people talk about lying on timesheets, sometimes it's a little bit more subtle than just making up hours. But that does happen. I have heard that happens. You know? I, I, I've heard of it. I know of it yeah. where people put down less time. You know, lying to put down more time it is a lie and, and possibly overwhelming the client, but also putting down less time is lying. Yeah. And also, even though the client gets billed less, it doesn't get charged extra. But but it's it's stopping the firm from from using, having a tool where they can manage the practice. Um, I I want to make I want I want to make comment. Sure, we're, sure. We're talking about large firms using timesheets, but. Uh, most of the people I think that are going to listen to your podcast are at small firms, 20, 30 people, maybe sole practitioners, two-person firms. And, and I don't think that what we're talking about is relevant to small firms. Whether they use timesheets or not, the owners are more hands-on. The owners are, um, and the managers, they know what's going on. They know who's doing what. They know who the stores are. They, they know how to nurture the better people and they know how to tolerate the not better people and they know who they should let go. And uh, so, you know, I could, mm -hmm. we could, we could talk about this because I find this, this very interesting, but I, I would suggest that the firm you work for it is not, does not have a sustainable model. It may be sustainable for, for a period of time. Could be sustainable for ten or fifteen years. It's sustainable, and it's certainly sustainable because you left them four or five years ago, and they're still growing. But, right, and, uh, but don't most firms operate under this model? It's pretty standard. No, like, it's not standard. Uh, people are not. People are looked at at the output, at, at the performance of the job they do, at the quality of the job they do, and the quality is measured in a lot of different ways. The quality is measured by uh, the relationships with the clients, whether the client's satisfied with the team, 
whether the work is delivered on time, whether the client refers work. We have people in my firm, we have two people that just became a partner to my first. They, they, I know them well because they started in my office. They started with my firm, the first job, and they started in my office. And uh, these people uh, developed relationships with clients. They, they, they got extra services from clients. They became the first person that the clients called, and the partners knew about that. And the partners knew about their relationships. I don't think that these people, I wasn't, I'm not, wasn't I'm not in on the uh, decisions anymore. But but even when I was at, when I went in, when I wasn't on the decisions, who to make a partner, I don't recall a discussion ever about how much time they put in. The, the, the discussion yeah. was relationships. Did he did he get organic growth from the clients? Did he deliver the work on time? Did he do superior service for the clients? Do the clients make referrals to them? And did the client and the clients pay their bills on time and give us the the annual raises that we ask for and that we need? Yeah. So so I don't see time as being the issue. Uh, so so I, then if if none if if time is not the criteria for making partner and it's not important at all in this it, discussion, then why even why is that? A metric that we obsess about in firms. I, you work for a firm that obsessed on that metric. Well, it was it wasn't they obsessed on it. It's the only one they really had, like firm wide to look it's at. It's not a good metric, it, as far as I'm concerned. It's not a good metric. Okay. It, it's well, what does a, with them? It's not them... a valid metric, and, and I I say that they're making the wrong decision. Look, you you, you obviously are a staff, and, and if you were at with them. And you were doing, and you liked what you were doing, and you were happy. We, you, we would have never let you leave. That, that's a fact. And, and to well, say that you left because of, of uh, a screwed up incentivization, it, it doesn't happen. Well, it was one of the reasons. The other reason was a tech company recruited me and offered me an absurd amount more money than the firm was willing to pay me. But well, that, no, that's, no, but that's they a separate you, issue. No, because they offered you. The money became an issue because you did not see a clear future with the firm you were at. You yeah, weren't I mean, happy was... with the work you were doing. You weren't happy with the management of the firm. And you probably felt you were stymied in the experience you were getting. So so, so money was one of the criteria. It's a good criteria. It's an important criteria. But but we have partners in Witham that started as interns. Their whole career was with them. Half the partners are with them. It with all the mergers and everything that with them is done, half the partners still started with our firm. Bill Hegeman, I imagine partner yeah. joined with a year experience. Uh, it, the partner charge of my office, John Watson, started with the firm. So, it's it, 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 you, you work for a firm that, in my opinion, was not good. Now, they're obviously good. But they're not. They weren't good enough to keep you, which means in my book they're not good. Well, I, I had just been there for like a year, and I expected them to bend over backwards and change systems and processes for me. That's just not going to happen in a in a in a for a manager who's been there for you know six months. Like I, yeah, I get they, it, but they used the wrong metrics. They right. they didn't treat you as an individual. Well, well. So what metrics then, like that's with them use? formally that would enable us to drop the hourly thing like i mean does with them give bonuses to staff based on their hourly billings yes they do they okay do. They, they, so, they do get a bonus based on hourly billing they also get bonuses based on other criteria but one of the criteria that we use is is certainly is hourly billing another criteria is realization another criteria is it, growth in the client. Another criteria is mentorship and bringing up pe- people under you. Another criteria is bringing in business. Another, you could bring in business from, from new clients and you could bring in business from ex- mm-hmm. additional services for existing clients. So there's a lot of criteria that's used. Ours is certainly one of the criteria, but it's not the only criteria and it's not the... the the criteria that people get beat up on if uh, 
for some reason, the hours are out of shape. If the hours are out of shape, we, we don't want people to not put down the hours. We want them to put down the hours, and then we want to know why the hours are out of shape. Maybe a very good example is if you're training young people on a, new, on, a, on a client, on a long existing client, and you have a lot of extra training time, then, but we have a code for training time at a client. So we take that into account, but we expect training, we expect growth. We, we, you know, a lot of firms have pipelines of new business. Witham has a pipeline of, of staff growth. And, and, and we, we hire a lot of people. We hired 130 people are going to start in November where their first job in public accounting is with them. Have a, we have a class of 130 people starting in, in November, uh, and we have a, a two-way training program. So this starts the pipe that pipeline, and the and some of these people may become partners. We hope some of these people become partners, but but we also hope they stay. And, and if if the average life, by the way, Witham's, um, and, and this I don't want to make this about Witham, but what, one of the criteria that we also look at is uh, is turnover. If we have a manager. Or we have a, a, a supervisor, whatever it is, and the people under them ha- have a higher turnover than, than when they work with somebody else. We want to know about that also. So we're running a business. Everybody's running a business, and they want to do it right. And, and you, if you look at one thing, which is not, it's not a, it's not a good way of measuring performance. The hours that people put in. If you have people, the guys that make the errors on tax returns work later than the people that don't make errors on tax returns. So, so if a boss is in the office at nine at ten o'clock at night and, and sees two jerks in the office fixing their errors, and, and and the people that didn't make errors went home at seven, the partner is not going to say, "Gee, these two guys are stars because they work until ten o'clock at night." He's going to say, "Why would these people work in ten o'clock at night?" And, and they say, well, they, they got extra work to do. They wanted to meet deadlines or, or they're fixing errors. It's two different, yeah, but, two different reasons. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess. So it sounds like we're actually in agreement then that the billable hour is not a good performance metric. There are many better performance metrics. You just You just disagree that it's a negative incentive the way I think it is. Like, no, so I see, no, I see. no, no. You say it's a negative. Uh, you said it was a negative incentive. Yes. Um, f- to get like people it, to do better work or, or, or more work, to want to take on more work, and I disagree well, with that. I, well, so specifically, it discourages innovation because, like, putting in technology will reduce their billable hours. They'll have to take on more clients. There's really no reason for them to want to become more efficient. In no, a cast that, practice. That's, no. If you're a professional, if you if you 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 went to college, you want to be an accountant. You you get a job in a county firm. You become a CPA. You're a professional. If you're a professional, you want to grow. And one way one way of growing is not to do work that could be done by a machine or by artificial intelligence. So, so anybody that says, "Well, gee, I'm not going to give this work up to a computer because I'm going to work less," is, is a fool. And does it belong in public accounting? And, well, and, and thankfully, those people leave. <laughs> so, well, but but not all of them do. Not all of them do, and we all know who those people are in our firms. And I encountered them. There were some all stars who who agreed with me and and wanted to implement the tech because they saw it as a way to improve their careers. But then there was this whole group of people in the firm who were just kind of like pulling a paycheck. And I think it, we it, have to it, admit it, that those people exist. Like they're not yeah, not everybody's an all star. But they're not going to grow. You, you know, I, I one time I had a firm in New York, and we had we had fifty people. Just I started a firm with one other guy. In fourteen years, we had fifty people. We did not buy any practices, not buy any accounts, and and we couldn't get people know how. One day we hired a guy who was with a larger firm for seven years, and he and we hired him as a manager. The guy was terrible. It was terrible, and we ended up letting him go. And and one day I ran into uh, one of the uh, one of the founding partners of the other firm, 
I started talking. I said, you know, you had this guy so-and-so working for you for seven years. The guy was terrible. How, how could you do that? He says, Eddie, first of all, if you ever going to hire someone to work for me, you got to call me and check them out first. Second of all, we're big enough that we can afford to lose some, but we need bodies of clients. And he was a presentable body at a client. And, and, and on that basis, we kept him. He, he performed the role for us. But for you, no, you need everybody to, to be high, high productive right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's how, that's how you got to look at things and measure things. There are always yeah. going to be some duds in a firm. There's always going to, I had, a, I had a woman working for me. One of, I could probably count on major mistakes on, on my fingers on one hand. One of the major mistakes I had was I had a young lady working for me. She worked for me for a number of years. She was not growing. She was not growing. She, she, had, she worked on about 30, 35 of our small clients that we maybe didn't care about. We gave it to her. And uh, we, so we started giving her small raises. And after a couple of years, she figured out that she should leave. After she left, uh, we start, my partner and I started getting calls from 30 clients that, that were calling her every day or uh, calling her every week on something. She was the most pleasant person. She handled all their needs. And, and they didn't need a genius working on their stuff. They needed someone who made sure the, guy, the work got done it was, it was on time. My partner, I looked it over anyway. The work was done right. We had our annual meetings with the clients, and we misjudged them. So, so people have roles. Uh, I, could tell you, I could tell you a dozen stories of people like that. I had another guy that uh, he, uh, he, he didn't want, he's the kind of guy, you saw him walking, you walked the other way because you didn't want to talk to him. And one day I'm looking at, talk about timesheet. I'm looking at the timesheets. You know, you look at them, but you don't always focus in every time and everything. And one day I'm looking at the timesheets. And I'm looking at five clients that this guy's working on that had no idea why he's working on it. So I called in the manager and the account. He said, how come so-and-so worked on this? Oh, I had a tax question. I asked him. So why don't you ask so-and-so who's in the tax department? He says, well, I did. He never got, I asked him two, three times. He never got back to me. I asked this guy and he gives me the answer. So five managers told me that this was a resource for them that I, that I underestimated because I don't like the way he walked or I don't like the way he talked. So I started advancing him and giving him better work to do because he, he was a resource that I didn't know about in a small firm. I didn't know about it, but I picked it up on the timesheet. So talk about value of timesheet. Okay. That, right. That's a good value of, <laughs> of use of the timesheet. That I have to give it that to you. And that is a <laughs> that is a actually a good use of a timesheet, and um, I'll have to take that into consideration. I got, um, I got a dozen things like that. That's this. Well, that's not, well, that's just one thing. I give you so, another use of a timesheet. Okay, let's do it. I, I I hired a guy, hotshot manager, and I look at the time, and, and the time is. Is, is the realization is terrible. Realization is, is the, the uh, amount you collect divided by uh, the time. The amount you build. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it was very, let's say it was 40%. And this was a, this was a profitable client. I used to do it myself. I turn it over to him, and I look at it, and, and it's a big client, and, and he's doing all the work himself. I says, you, you, you can't do all the work yourself. You got you to take some more. He says, well, I don't, I don't know how to train them. I don't know what to give them. So I started working with the guy and training him, and I reduced his time. Let's say I reduced his time on this client from 150 hours to 50 hours. And then we put younger people where maybe they spent 150 hours. So I increased the actual hours on the job from 150 to 200, but I increased the realization. I had a good separation of work. I didn't. I had my star guy, was someone who became my star, uh, not bogged down. I, I freed up a hundred hours. You think he complained to me that I freed up a hundred hours and now he had to do more work? He he grabbed the work and we grabbed right, it. Right. Grabbed yes. it. And then he, he learned new things and we got new clients right. with new services. 
and he be- he became a part. I met him, and they're making him a partner. So so, and I got that from the timesheet because, you know, on a daily basis, we think we know what's going on, but sometimes you don't always know what's going on. Forget I'm at a small practice, and I'm working with clients. I'm with clients all the time. I'm reviewing the reports and the output, but I'm not reviewing the input. I'm relying on managers and staff to do that. So, yeah. So I, I suppose the the information you get from knowing what clients, staff are working on and and when, that's helpful in in figuring out if they're really being utilized properly. This star was trying to do everything himself and you were able to figure out from the time entries what was going on and get some junior staff in there to help. That made him happier because he got to do more and better things. So Actually, initially I made him unhappy because I made him do something out of his comfort zone. I made him train people out of school. Mm. But also, I picked it up from the timesheet. Now, you might say that I was a poor manager because... I should have been aware of it and not needed to look at the timesheet. And right. I'll tell you that eventually I would have picked it up without having, if I didn't have the timesheet, I would have picked it up eventually. It, but I, in this case, I picked it up sooner than I would have from the timesheet. The timesheet is a tool. It doesn't replace management. It doesn't replace oversight. It doesn't replace checking in with people, what they're doing, if they're on target, if they're doing extra work, that they shouldn't be doing, or if the client is them for help on something. So, so it, it's it's just a tool. It's not the tool. It's a tool. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I think there are some folks who use it and don't use the other tools you're talking about. Well, and if you do that- the firm you work for, they clearly did not use the other tool because I'm telling you, we would have never let you, if I had, when I had my own firm, it, it, with the 50 people, we would never let you leave. And then I had a smaller practice when I left that. It, we, you would have never left. And if it meant making you a partner, we would have made you a partner. By the way, I made this guy a partner without him asking to become a partner. We felt he earned it. He reached their level. And we one day we went to him. This is before I merged in with him. He's still with I merged in with him with two other partners, but all three of us are still with him. So, so one of the other criticisms of timesheets is that it creates this unhealthy culture among the high performers of, I want to have the most hours. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree? Do you think there is that negative impact? Yeah, it's a negative impact. And if you stop, if you're driving, if you're driving a car and you have to stop for, for a stop sign, that, that has a negative impact too. You're forced to do something. People don't like to be forced to do things. If you have, if I had managers working for me, and they they had that attitude, they would they would have made it to manager working for me, and they're not going to make it to the next level. These you are mean, people. If, what attitude do you mean? That the 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 negative attitude about keeping track of the time, about building up the hours, and all that. It, right. Right. It, it, it's, but let's say they're being honest. They're being honest about their time, and they are all stars, and they're just trying to, you know, they're trying to bill more hours. They don't because, get. They don't get it. First of yeah. all, if you if you're trying to build more, if if all you're trying to do is build hours, you're not building relationships with clients. You're not building relationships with people that might be able to refer work to you in the future. You're not joining organizations that you're getting involved in. You, 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 maybe you're not learning new skills. Maybe you're not taking, maybe you're taking the obligatory 40 hours a year CPE and not 60 hours to, to where maybe you should take the other 20 to learn added skills and everything. Oh yeah. And that, maybe, you're that not, actually, maybe you're not reading books and, yeah. and not talking about the books. So, so, so that was one of my frustrations is I couldn't get the staff to take time to train, <laughs> right? They, they had, they had a limited training budget. And if they'd already used it, I couldn't get them to go take the certification for the application that I wanted them to learn to become more efficient because they said, I don't, I don't have training time. I'm going to have to eat these hours if I do this training. Well, I, you know? I, like, I've been around a long time. I worked for four firms before I started my own firm. I would have never hired me based on my 
work history. Uh, I had my own firm for a year. I then formed a partnership. Uh, I was there for three years. And then I formed a partnership with another guy. We ended up with 50 people. Then I left that. I formed a small firm. And, and then we merged into, my small firm merged into with them. I never had that problem. I never saw it. I never had it. I never had it in the firm. If I occasionally did have bad apples working for me, but I never. Well, it wasn't like pe- they they didn't they didn't tell me this straight up, but I could tell could they tell. weren't excited you, about it. You could tell. You could tell from people. You could tell they're not yeah. excited about new things, about taking on added work. Right. Yeah. But, exactly. You never encountered that, like that sort of like resistance to change that you get. Occasionally, I did, and, and they left. I had them leave, or I told them to leave, or, or I didn't promote right. them because I need, if I needed a body somewhere, you know, you know, you don't, you don't wake up smart. You don't wake up knowing everything. At one point, I reached the point where I said, you know what? If I have someone that's not that's not gonna that's not that good, I'm not gonna carry them anymore, and I'm not gonna wait for them to quit. I'm gonna I'm gonna get rid of them. When I was hired a guy so, December first. Yeah. To, to bring him, get ready for tax season. December 31st, we fired him. So I think the challenge for me is as a, as a manager, I didn't have the luxury of firing and hiring my own staff. I had to deal with what I inherited when I came into that office. And so I was looking for ways to incentivize these people who were kind of average. Every firm has them. It's most of the people in the firm are average. That's the nature of how things work. You have a small percentage who are extraordinary you have a small percentage who are terrible and should be fired immediately. And then you have a bunch of folks who are in the middle. And that's what I was trying to figure out how to motivate is those people that just weren't, they didn't seem very motivated. And I think every firm has them, especially big ones. Well, every firm has them, number one. And when you say average, there are a bunch to be average. You got a bunch under them and a bunch over them. So so the ones that are way under, you you don't spend time on. But, you know, let me let me put yeah. it. I had a small firm, and, and when I had my small, and we only hired people out of school. And and when I hired people out of school, I did not get the, the top students, or the next to top students, or the third from top students. Whereas I put, I didn't get first choice, second choice, and third choice. But I hired good people who who became good accountants, become became CPAs. Some of them stayed with me for many years. So so you got to look for other things. I, I'll give mm-hmm. you an example. When I hired out of school, uh, I hired people that didn't have the, the top averages. Who did I hire? I hired people that, that had to work that had to work their way through college. If you're working 30, 40 hours a week, you're not going to get straight A averages. I, I worked for people. I, I hired people who, who I had one, one young lady. She uh, she had a she had a uh, soccer scholarship in college, so she was on a soccer team. She had to work to to cover the 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 however course, so she didn't have great average. She didn't have great marks. When she was in high school, though, she also started a soccer, a girl soccer team in high school. She was with me ten years till she had a third kid and decided she didn't want to work anymore. And I, I did whatever I could to try to get her to stay in any terms she wanted. So, so you got to look for other people. Also, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody knows the same as everybody else. I give it. I, give, I use the example of a. I use the example of a uh, an audit. You, you have not-for-profit audits. You have four hundred one k audits, and you have business firm audits. Well. Someone who does a not-for-profit audit, a review, a reviewer of a not-for-profit, may not be good at reviewing a manufacturing company with inventory. So you don't give it to them. And someone who audit, who reviews an audit of a manufactured inventory, you may not give them a 401k audit to to review. You you you, you try to. But give people work to their strengths and you shield them from their weaknesses. You know, the book, Good to Great, there's a premise is that you can't have a great firm unless everybody's great. But that, but by definition, but yeah, not everybody's going to be not great. Gonna, you're not going to get great people. But right. you, and if you have great people and they're not doing, and everything they're doing is not great, then they're not great people by my definition. But you could take someone who's not great 
and you could find what makes them what, what they're great at. So, you know, now if someone's working 40 hours a week and I have work that they're great at that I could give them for eight hours a week, I'll make sure I give them those eight hours. I'm not going to give it to someone else who, who's, who's not great in that. And I'll take away eight hours from, from that person that, that maybe the, the worst eight hours, the, the work that they're not the least happy with. So, so you, 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 you know, I've, I've, I had a guy where I taught a, a, an MBA course one time in macroeconomics. And there was one thing I couldn't get. I just couldn't get it. I had to teach the damn thing. And I couldn't figure it out. And I had a kid working for me, very smart kid, but he, and he, did, he did exactly what was told, and he did it great. Not one, one thing extra. And I found out one day from talking to him that he's, he's taking a master's in economics. He taught that, that session for me. <laughs> but of course, the minute he got his master's degree, he left. And, and the time he was with me, we got good work. We got good value from him. But, but we didn't invest any time to, to bring him to the next level because that's not what he wanted. So, so you got to have awareness. You got to have also, you got to match clients with the staff. This young lady that I talked about who worked on these 30 clients, they loved her. She was great. Now, maybe I could not have the given one that you The one that you fired. The, I didn't fire her. The one, I, I, the one that I misjudged. I, I was very bad at that. This was a very bad mistake I made, and, and I regret it. And You know, you can't live, can't go back, change things. But I didn't try not to make that mistake again. But she had a, she had a quality that the clients loved her, and she was responsive. You know, you know, where the, you mm-hmm. know what I say the biggest quality that clients value more than anything? Availability. Yes. They, they don't value how smart yep. you are. They don't value... Well, they, they value if you return well, your call right away, if you're proactive, yeah. if you initiate calls. She so isn't was, that crazy that the number one thing people complain about is not being able to reach their tax preparer? That's right. Like, it's nuts when that's what people value. So that's what I teach. But I, but, I don't teach how to do it. I don't teach how to do a 1031 exchange. I teach you, you return calls right away. You're available, yeah. you follow up. And I tell my, my tax staff, if they need information from a client and I don't get a complaint from a client that you're driving them crazy, then you're not doing your job. Because <laughs> <laughs> the biggest problem I have is, is when cl- staff call clients with missing information and the staff don't respond. Yeah. But, so yeah. I told them, every, I want you to call every three days. And and if you and, if, and at some point if they don't call or complain about you, then you're not doing your job. <laughs> so so I, I love that. And I agree one hundred percent with you on this. And I see this all the time. Um you, you go out on social media. If you look on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on Twitter and you ask people what is your biggest complaint about your current CPA, the number one complaint is they don't call me back. I don't know where my tax return is. I have to bug them. I'm in the dark. And sounds like that's something that <laughs> you can help people with. And, and it kind of brings us back to the original topic of this discussion, which was why does work take so long in firms? And it relates to this issue of client satisfaction because when the tax return takes a long time to get through the firm, it's a bad experience for the client, right? It would be better if when they get us what we need, it takes two weeks <laughs> and it's done, right? You know, so, Blake, you know, if, 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 if you wanted to talk about why does work take so long, mm-hmm. then, then that to me is a much more important topic than, than, than timesheets. So, no, so no, let's no, talk listen. about those. No, let's I'm talk about ta- that. Work takes so long because the staff are not trained properly. They're not given the right work to do. They're not given the CPE that, that is at the level that they're at for the work they're going to, to go on. And they're not supervised enough, and they're not. There's no oversight, or there's not enough oversight on them. That that's why work takes so long. I, I, uh, in my firm, I haven't done this in the last two years because of COVID. We my office hires six. We hire two classes. Of of each class has six interns 
for six weeks. And and I get I get one of the interns for six weeks to work for me. Whatever I want done. And and the deal I got is they don't have to put it on the timesheet. And I have them do all these weird projects that I have in mind. And I'll give you an example. One of the projects I did, you know about sustainability is a big deal, right? ESG. Okay. Yeah. I, I developed the first first CPE program on sustainability about six or seven years ago for the New York State Society of CPAs and had an intern worked on it for three weeks. And, and when it was finished, I had him attend the program and the program was in the morning. And then I had him, I, I set him up in, in, in our New York City office, uh, which there, because he worked in my East Brunswick office, uh, to, just to meet people and have them show him around. I had a, I had a, a kid, I had a college kid, a college, uh, a junior in college, someone's going to be a junior in college, develop a, a, spent three weeks developing sustainability CPE program. Pretty, pretty complicated stuff. And he did a great job because he was properly supervised. Look, I don't want to take away, he was a smart kid and he listened, but he is also very closely supervised and he worked at the next, I had him sit at the next, next desk from me. I once did a, uh, I had a review I had to do a retreat for a CPA firm. But but before the retreat, I, I wanted to go through all their numbers. And, and uh, what I did was I went the first day. I was at a table that was maybe two and a half, three feet wide. I took an intern with me, and she spent the whole day with me right opposite me. And she, she laid out all the numbers, the five-year analysis about their tax returns and the time runs and all this stuff. She did it all. And she didn't know what she was doing, but she got it all done because she was properly supervised. And you know what the big shame of that was? That I did not have a young partner doing the work instead of having the intern. Because the young partner would have seen how a CPA firm runs. And this intern was just pushing numbers to get the work done. So... I know that you could take people out of school. When I merged with, with them, every mm-hmm. single person working for me, we hired, it was their first job. I, I, and my, my chargeable hours when I merged with, with them was 50 bucks an hour more than Bill Hagerman's chargeable hour. It was the, the major part of my office at that time. So I had good rates. I was making a lot of money for a small firm. And I was, and I, I wasn't overworked. at twelve hundred chargeable hours, and and I was doing it with all people that I trained at school. So so yep. this stuff can be done. The work takes so long because of poor management. Period. And, poor and training you, and poor management. Well, poor management training falls under the management. Mm. Look, you 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 have obligatory CPE. So you send you send the kid who's one year working for you one year to an all-day tax update. Seven of the eight hours has nothing to do with what he's going to do. Send them to, to a program, send them to a seven, an eight-hour quiz on how to prepare a basic tax return. Right. That, I, you know, I always wonder, like, why, why is it that academia, and maybe this was just my experience, but when I, I'm a career changer, so I went back to school for my core accounting classes. So I took them all actually fairly recently, right? Right before I got my CPA. And I studied really hard for audit. I was terrified of the CPA exam and audit. I did well in my courses and I, I wanted to nail it. I studied my butt off. I got like a 96 on audit. Okay. That's great. great. And right, but I couldn't. If you gave me an audit, I wouldn't know the first thing about how to run an audit. And same thing with tax. If you told me, hey, Blake, here's an easy tax return. You've, you've studied accounting for four years and you've taken the CPA exam, prepare this tax return. I wouldn't know the first thing about it. So like, isn't part of the problem that our educational institutions do not prepare us to actually be accountants and oh. that firms have to basically train them from scratch? The answer is yes, but the problem is also the the, the firm. Look, the, yeah, uh, when I mean I, they have to do it. I get it. It's I, not I optional. Went, I went to college probably before you were born, 
and, and and they did not train me to do tax returns or to get to get a job done. Uh, and, and I learned, I worked for a firm that sent me to to Cindy Kess's tax workshop. Who right away I, I, now I'm very good friends with him. But at the time I was a kid, and he's given the they sent me to a tax workshop. How to do a tax return from A to A to Z. And of course, in those days, CPE wasn't mandatory. Once it became mandatory, they're sending people. Look, they're sending a staff to to an, an eight-hour session on revenue recognition. What kind of crap is that? I, I give a. I told you I give this webinar at CBA Academy that has a few thousand people attend. Every time I give it, I'm reviewing tax returns. I give another one that that has the second most people called Essential Auditing for Individual Growth. I give a one-hour webinar. To explain what you what benefits you can get out of auditing, there's a big disconnect between the checklist that that the staff has to fill out, and, and a guy walking into a grocery store and, and buying a, a a a jar of mustard. There's a complete dis, disconnect between the two, and, and and if you don't understand that a guy had had a jar of mustard, got into the store, you, you know you you could have a million transactions an hour. Walmart, I'm sure, has a million transactions an hour. At the end of the month, the total of, of the month's transactions is in the general ledger. And at the end of the year, it's on a, it's on a trial balance and it's, spit, it's on a financial team that's spit out. And, they, and we tell the account, here's some checklists. Look, look at the accounts, look at the aging of the accounts receivable. They're not learning. They're not learning anything. They're not learning the, the cycle, the business cycle. They're not learning how the transactions get created. The kids that five years from now, no one is going to understand tax returns, because right now we're not doing tax returns anymore. What we're doing is we're scanning the the original documents. It populates the the software, and and then you get the kids checking that the the some of the stuff is scanned right, and that the uh, the indexing is right in in the uh, PDF file. Right. Yeah. Did I learn anything? Or 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 we're offshoring the actual entry of that data as it's well. The same right? thing. It's, it's the same yeah. thing. What we're doing is we're taking away the proposition return. When I had my firm, I merged in sixteen years ago with Whiffen. We used to have a training program where every we we made up a, a tax return. Everybody had to do it by hand. When I went to college, we had to do a practice set. In in our Ordering clears, and one one jerk did it, and then twelve of us would sit and copy it from him, and we didn't learn it. <laughs> we didn't learn it, but but in those days, everything was more hands on. You you got to develop systems and training that becomes interesting, that that they could buy into, that they could see a benefit from, and, and that they could grow from. I do. I've done it in my small firm. It, with on-the-job training, and, and I, had, yeah. I had very rigid training, but it was on-the-job training. And I'm telling you, my staff, a lot of people work for me that they hired out of school, have their own practices today. They're all doing very, all doing well. In fact, some of them retired already. <laughs> but uh, you, it, it's it all gets down to management, and and you got to look at what you want. I give you one more example. Perfect. When I, when my method for reviewing tax returns is if someone makes an error, they have to fix the error. Now, in most firms, they want the reviewer to fix the error. If it's if it's less than 15 minutes or 10 minutes of work, they want the reviewer to fix it. When the reviewer fixes it, the person doing the return never learns that they what the error was, and they never learned to fix it. I, I want, and I, I stuck to this. Now, if you make everybody fix the errors, that takes time. It takes time. And it's yeah. gonna, and it made the leg get any return out. So my question to me, to Ed was, am I in business to get through the tax season or am I in business to build a business that will sustain itself and, and be worth something in the future? And it was to build a business that would sustain itself. So I made the staff people fix their own errors. It delayed things, they needed time. And I had people who learned how to do things, and I had people who learned not to make errors. And I had people that knew if they made an error, there's a cost to it. 
and sometimes the cost is very uh, is very expensive because I, I once made someone come back uh, an hour and a half ride back to the office to fix a zip code. But well, thankfully, you, we don't have to do that anymore. We can just do it from home, right? Well, that's the same thing, but but yeah. doing it from home is 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 okay as long as the reviewer doesn't fix it and then right. puts they, it on a sheet. I fixed your zip code. If, if It's okay to do it from home as long as you tell them you made a mistake on the return, you got the address wrong, fix it or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, that, this has been very educational for me. Thank you so much, Ed, for taking the time to discuss, debate. I've enjoyed it a lot. If people want to get in touch with you online, where would you point them? Actually, a good way is, is to contact me through LinkedIn. And the other thing is uh, they could just email me, emailmelowitzatwitham.com. If they have any questions, they're welcome to email me. But put down like a brief sense of what the question is and always include your phone number. I have people, you know, I get two-thirds of the emails I get. People write long wrong things, they long things they want to answer, and they don't even give me their phone number. They expect me to spend two <laughs> hours to answer their damn question. If, if it, they give me the phone number, I pick up the phone and, and I call them. Yeah. And I, it's much easier for me. I don't think, and I, I, I'm, I'm loath to write anything. Yeah, first of all, it takes time. And second of all, if I'm going to write something, I, I got to make sure I cover all bases and I got to make sure it's right and didn't leave something out. And it takes a lot of time. So uh, I, I'm very good at calling people. And I well, need phone numbers. <laughs> it sounds like you're also then a fan of being on podcasts. So I would love to have you back uh, for future episodes and future topics. Again, I've been speaking with Ed Menlowitz, partner at Witham in East Brunswick, New Jersey, and reach him at e. Did you say it's e Menlowitz at Witham dot com? Yeah, the link e m e n d l o w i t z at W-A-T-H-U-M dot com. You can also Google me and then figure it out. But You'll find also them. LinkedIn is pretty good. Uh, LinkedIn. Send me a message on LinkedIn. Just don't make it a really long one. Include your phone number and the <laughs> contact info for Ed will be in the show notes. Thanks, Ed. It was great talking with you. Great. This was great. I had a good time. Hey, everyone. Blake here again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to get CPE for listening to episodes like this one and many more accounting and tax podcasts, go to earmarkcpe.com, sign up and get early access when the app launches later in 2021.